my great honor to be here with you. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to open to your Old Testament, to the prophet in the book of Zechariah. And we're going to read two verses out of chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 is, I'm sure, a very famous and well-known verse to many of us. However, it has taken on new meaning for me individually as a pastor as a disciple of Jesus. And so we're going to read Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And then he, being the prophet, said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, without question and without a doubt, you are already here. As surely as we have anticipated your presence, you have anticipated being here. And so once more we welcome you into this place, not only with our praise and our worship, but now by inclining our ears to your word. Lord Jesus, we confess readily, quickly, fully that you alone have the word of life. We don't come to a man, we don't come a place, we come to you. And we ask you, speak your living word, it is active. Speak your living word to us. And towards that end, Spirit of God, come and give us eyes to behold Jesus. Give us ears to hear his word. And give us hearts to know and to accept it and to walk in it by your grace. In your name I pray, amen. A couple of months back, I was reading the biography of George Whitfield, because then, previously, the Lord had begun to just stir my heart in terms of seeking and pursuing revival. I experienced revival in what was called the Toronto Blessing. Your president, my father, and many here also got converted during the 70s in the Jesus movement. And so I just began to feel in my spirit that this was something that I felt and that I hoped God wanted to do. And so I've just been reading nonstop about revival historically, the theology of revival, the study of it. And I came to the biography of George Whitfield, and in the very beginning in the preface, the author of that biography was stating something to the effect that George Whitfield was a part of what had been, in the end of it all, about a 40-year revival. And the moment I read those words, 40-year revival, my spirit was convicted, and I was stirred, and I said, Lord, why can't you do that again? We often think of revival in terms of just a passing and a blowing wind, which oftentimes it is. But Lord, why could you not do again what you did back then? What prevents you from sending a 40-year revival? And understanding within that 40 years, it's also therefore my, my belief and my conviction that imagine what a generation that is born into revival and that grows up in revival, imagine what that generation could do. We are talking about a generation that could transform a society, and I'm sure you agree with me that our society needs transforming. And I'm not so sure it's going to happen from the bottom up or from the inside out, but I'm pretty sure the only way it can happen is from the top to the bottom and by the spirit of the living God. And so it is our conviction now as a church to begin to pray for a 40-year revival. We recently went through a 40-day fast for a 40-year revival. We believe that God is going to do it. And so in considering that, I've come to this verse because it has reminded me of a couple of important things and it has reminded our church of a couple of important things and I hope in humility to remind us of a couple of important things. 
that when we consider revival, when we consider a move of God, I want us to remember three very simple things. Number one, that it's not going to be by might. Number two, it's not going to be by power. But number three, it's only going to be by the Spirit of the Lord. Very simple. It's the word of the Lord. So number one, not by might. Here in verse 6, the prophet comes and he says very clearly, this is the word of the Lord to use a rubbabel, not by might. Now in the context of what we're reading here, the people of Israel are attempting to rebuild the temple of the Lord. It had been destroyed by virtue of their sin and breaking covenant with God as exiles are returning and they want to rebuild the temple. Why? Because the temple is the center of their life. The the temple is the center of their identity. My wife loves candles, and she lights them throughout the morning and the afternoon, and they go on into the evening, and then it's my job at night to not forget to blow out the candles. And so I go, and I put the top on, and the oxygen is cut off from it, and the flame, what? It is extinguished. Within the temple, many of you know this as Bible students, there was a lamp that burned. And the flame was to burn, what, 24-7, signifying what? That the presence of the living God was dwelling in the midst of the people of Israel. Their worst nightmare would be to leave the lamp unattended and for the flame to go out, because that would signify the unimaginable, that God had departed and ascended and left from dwelling in their midst. That was the worst possible scenario, and yet it came to pass. So here they are, wanting to rebuild a temple, because the idea is not to just pick any lamp, And just to put it wherever they want, the idea was to follow the word of the Lord, to walk in obedience to him, the covenant restored, rebuild the temple so that the flame could be lit, signifying what? The presence of the God, the living God of heaven and earth, would descend and dwell in their midst. But while they are attempting to rebuild these things, they are facing obstacles and enemies, distraction and discouragement. We know what this is all about, right? The moment you begin to walk in faith and to walk in obedience to Jesus, what begins to happen? You will inevitably face distractions. You will face obstacles. People will come out of the woodwork and they'll criticize you. Your enemies that you thought were long and forgotten all of a sudden appear to you and you don't want to go into Aldi's because you see their van parked in the parking lot. Right? Everything happens at once. Many of us understand this from experience. So when you are attempting to live for God, when you are attempting to build something, James would tell you, don't be surprised at the fire ordeals that come your way. And so the people of God are encountering obstacles. And they might be tempted, like many of us today, to just push through with our own will and effort. We just need a better strategy, a better plan. We just need to pray harder. We just need to sing louder. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves, except when we believe that it's by might that we begin to accomplish the work of the Lord. And so God very explicitly comes to remind the people in the midst of a good work, facing distractions and obstacles, you're not going to rebuild the temple, you're not going to accomplish my work by might, not by might. See, not by might means not by any competence or inherent strength or ability of your own to affect something. It's not within your internal competence. It's not within my natural equipping, so to speak, to accomplish the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord, yes, will take your gifts and your skills. He has gifted them to you. But at the beginning and at the end of that work, do you know where it begins, resides, and ends? And is fulfilled in the spirit of the living God. By all means, offer him all of your might, all of your competency, all of your skills. But let's never confuse the truth. 
that it's not us in and of ourselves that are accomplishing the work of the Lord. He has called you to accomplish it. He wants to use your skills and your abilities, but more than that, he wants to fill all of those, blow wind in your sails by the spirit of the living God. For them, as a national country, as a country, it wasn't going to be by any great showing of military power or national wealth that they were going to accomplish that. They didn't have anything to show for it at that point. So it's not in the size, it's not in the numbers. Nothing wrong with size and numbers, but it's not by might. It was nothing residing within them. It was nothing residing with them. Nothing was going to be sufficient, comparable, or interchangeable with the Spirit of the Lord. Psalm 127, verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. You might be excited about the vision and the blueprint and all the promises of God, but unless the Lord builds your life, builds your marriage, builds your relationships, unless the Lord builds your ministry, your church, whatever you're doing, we labor in vain. But the promise is that the Lord who calls you to build is going to be with you to build it. But the point of the verse is to remind ourselves that unless he does it, we have no hope of ever fulfilling it, at least not in the heavenly sense of accomplishing what he wants. And so this, this was and this continues to be the great temptation and the danger to God's people. Second Chronicles and his fame, King Uzziah's fame, spread far, for he was marvelously helped by the Lord till he was strong. And when he was strong, what happened? He grew proud to his own destruction. Right? So many of us start out small. We recognize in the smallness of what and who we are. Unless God does it, it's not going to happen. And then God begins to do something. And he begins to grow something. It begins to bear fruit. And then once things become full and rich and abundant, what tends to happen? We begin to forget. Or when you're newly married and you don't know anything about finances. And you recognize you're just in an absolute complete mess. And it's in the mess that you recognize, God, I need your help. And you know what God comes and does? He helps you through counsel, advice, classes, experience. And then everything begins to settle. And maybe you begin to prosper in some sense. And you know what begins to happen? You begin to forget in your prosperity that it was him that gave you the wisdom all along. It can happen in a multitude of ways. It can happen in a multitude of ways. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17, God says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. The Israelites very quickly forgot that they were slaves in Egypt. It was God who delivered them, brought them into the promised land, and God told them beforehand, when you go in, be careful. That you don't begin to enjoy my blessings so much that you forget it was my hand that gave them to you. We as God's people, we have to constantly remind ourselves and come back to the rock-bottom truth that we lean on and we lean into the strength of God. Psalm 33, the king is not saved by his great army. A great army is a good thing. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. By all means, become strong. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. But the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those who hope in his steadfast love. Revival, as I understand it, a movement of God as we hopefully are seeking, it doesn't originate with man. And it is not sustained by man's, by man's strength and ability, but it is sustained by the strength and the competence and the ability of God, not by might. But then God continues. He says, not only is it not by might, but it's not by power. Now, this word power, it means the activity and the exercise 
of man's wisdom and strength, or we could say a church's wisdom and strength, or a ministry's wisdom and strength. That's what that power is, skill and potential. Now, when this word power is used in relation to God in the Old Testament, it means to create. And very quickly, don't we? We want to confuse many times that God alone has the power to create. We do not have the power to create anything. God alone reserves that right and that power for himself. Nothing we have, nothing we do is powerful enough to bring heaven down or to create the mighty works of God. We are, in my opinion, at least as it pertains to my church, we are in a desperate need of a move of God. And while we are walking in obedience to all that he is calling us to do, we recognize that we cannot create the mighty move of God that we so desperately want. But he has the power to do it. He has the power to do it. And so we appeal to him who has that power. Zerubbabel, you don't have the power to to rebuild the temple of the Lord. You don't have the, the, the might to rebuild it in your own strength. You need to look to something bigger, something else. Now, What is God attempting to do? Through Zerubbabel, through the prophet Zechariah, God is is not just seeking only the physical renewal of the temple. It's not just about building stone upon stone. But what God really wants is the spiritual renewal of the people that gather in the temple. I mean, can you think of anything scarier than constructing a beautiful church, but then having the people within there reside be empty? full church means nothing unless it's full of the presence and the power of the Lord and God was interested in renewing the people that gathered in the rebuilt temple and and that wasn't just for them that is still for now God God was and he is looking not for a building to dwell in so much but what for a people to dwell with it's not the beauty of the building it's not the excellence of the architecture It's not the tech. It's not any of those good things. But really what God is after is the beauty of holiness, the beauty of a people. That is what he is after. My father has traveled the world now. And he will tell you that he's been to some beautiful cathedrals and churches in Europe where the presence of God is barely noticeable. And then he's been to India and other poor countries where he's gone into shacks made by cardboard and other things. And he will tell you that he has never encountered the presence of God so strongly and so tangibly as in some of those huts in the country of India. What is the difference? The difference is not in the building. The difference is in the people of God and the beauty of holiness and the beauty that God is seeking in what? In a broken and in a contrite and a humble and a surrendered and a repentant heart. Evan Roberts, in terms of the Wales revival, and, and i got to be honest, I don't know if I 100% theologically agree. I'll submit it to those with more experience than I. But he said, the revival will only go as deep as the repentance. The deeper the repentance, the deeper the revival. And what is God looking for in your life and in my life and the life of his people? He's looking for us to be broken and contrite. That is the beauty of holiness. It's not we are the most moral people on the face of the planet. It's not we're better than anybody else. It's that within our hearts there's a brokenness, a contrite and a broken spirit the Lord will not despise. It's not obedience that he's looking for, but for the sacrifice of your heart. 
And if he can find the sacrifice of your heart, that is a pleasing aroma, and the spirit of the living God can consume that living sacrifice. God speaks these words. Verse 7, I find a very interesting verse, and, 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 and the word continues, and he says, Who are you, O great mountain? Right? There's this mountain of opposition before the work of the Lord. But the prophetic word is that whatever this great mountain is, Spiritual, practical, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, if it's not by might and it's not by power and if you walk in the Spirit, then by the Spirit, all opposition to God building and rebuilding his dwelling is going to be what? Brought low. If we attempt to fight the opposition, Zerubbabel, in our own strength and our own power, we're not going to be able to conquer these things. But if we rely on the Spirit of the living God, then he will come and he will make all of these mountains what? A plain. A great leveling will take place in the practical, the spiritual, the personal. We've purchased a home as a church, and we are, for now several years, wanting to move forward with it so that we can provide a home for women coming out of addiction. And everywhere I turn, and every step I take, another door is closed, another door is closed, another door is closed. And I've gotten almost to the end of myself, and I think that's the plan of the Lord. Supremely frustrating. But I know that if he began it, he's going to continue it. He's going to provide it. And somehow he's going to have to make all of those mountains a plain. You know, God wants to do the same thing in your life. You know where the highest mountains of opposition to God reside? Right here. It's not your finances. It's not your enemies. It's not a lack of resources. The biggest mountains of opposition to the work of the Lord often reside within the human heart. And that is where the spirit of the living God wants to come and to reside and to conquer every mountain of opposition to prepare the way of the Lord. That's his work. That's what he is about. Wants to do all of that within our lives through repentance, hunger, thirst, a new commitment to the word of the Lord. I think revival is in many ways a great leveling, a great preparing of the way of the Lord. And often it happens in our hearts first. It happens in our hearts first. So Rubbabel, I've called you to something important, but it's not by might, it's not by power, but what? It is by my spirit. When we read those words, spirit, I want us to understand that what God is communicating is that you need resources, but what you need are the divine resources. And all the divine resources of God are found in my spirit. In my spirit. And unless I give them to you, there's no way for you to acquire them. You can't ascend into heaven, but I want to give you my spirit and the divine resources that you need. That spirit can mean wind. It can mean breath, as it's used there. The wind and breath of God, where? Well, at the very beginning at creation, the spirit, what, hovered over the face of the waters? That same wind and breath was present at the Red Sea. Exodus 14, where Moses struck the water, and many times we think that the moment he struck the water, that instantaneously the waters parted, but that's not what it says. It says that the Lord sent, what, a wind, and began to drive the waters apart all night. But it was the wind it was the breath, I believe, of the living God. It's the same breath and wind present in the valley of dry bones. Prophesy, O man, to the bones. And when Ezekiel prophesies, the spirit of the living God comes. In Ezekiel 37, verses 8 and 9, Ezekiel says that I looked and I beheld, and there were sinews on them. The flesh had come upon them. The skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. 
I mean, what, what good is this majestic army, but they're all corpses. They're all corpses. They still need the breath of the living God. And so then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. My greatest fear is that I would somehow pastor a church and raise a ministry that looks like a magnificent army and not realize that all it is is a corpse. Because apart from the spirit of the living God being breathed and dwelling within them, what point is all of that? There is no point. But if the spirit of the living God can come into it, then something changes. And so the Lord God said, come from the four winds, O breath, breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. That's what we need today the spirit of the living God, to be breathed into us that we might stand on our feet as disciples and the church. But notice, he doesn't say, hey, it's your spirit. It's by my spirit. My, the spirit belongs to the living God. It's not our instrument. The Holy Spirit is not subject to our wills, to our goals, to our objectives. He's not someone that we can manipulate and use for our own glory, for our own plans. He's the sovereign and living God. It is my spirit. And so we bow to him. We, we, we surrender to him and have him come and do whatever it is that he wants to do. And God promises my spirit. He promises it to men like Zerubbabel, to a people that he was attempting to lead. He promises it to me. He promises it to you. He promises it to Elam Grace Church. He promises it to EBINC. His spirit to come and to dwell with him. He is looking for people. He's always looked for people. But there's something to the verse that the eyes of the Lord have always roamed across the face of the earth because he's always been looking for the same kind of person. He's been looking for men and women, hopefully like you and me, that want to be faithful to him. He found in Zerubbabel such a man. He was a royal figure of the Davidic line. But more than that, he found somebody faithful. And God strengthened him for task. That's what I want God to find in me, in Elam Grace Church, in you. We can't originate. We could never sustain a 40-year revival. Whatever God is breathing on you, it's not going to originate or be sustained by you, but the spirit of the living God resting upon a people who are bent over in their hearts towards him with open hearts and open hands. He can command the wind to come and to stay and to dwell here We won't be able to grasp it, but we know the one that commands it. We know the one that commands it. That's my prayer. That's my hope for you and for me. The temple then was begun with shouts of joy, it says in verse 7. And they brought out the stone. Some commentators call it the top stone or the first or the beginning stone, which was often rescued from the rubble of a previous demolished building. And they would find that top stone from the previous rubble and bring out that rubble. And that first stone from the rubble would become the first stone of the new temple. And they did all of that. And do you know what happened? The temple was destroyed again. So what of, what of these words then? 
Was that the only thing that God was calling to be rebuilt? Was that the only people that the Lord Jesus from heaven had in his mind when he said, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit? Or was there something bigger taking place? That temple was destroyed, but it's my conviction that God was continuing his work. And so what? We come to Acts and the pouring out of the spirit. And Peter says, the stone that you guys have rejected, that cornerstone, that rejected stone to the rubble of the cross, that stone, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, Jesus Christ, he was the true cornerstone. He was going to build the true living temple in which the spirit of the living God would not dwell just permanently within a permanent building, but we would become that church, the temple of the living God, that he might come and blow across the face of the earth and dwell in this place, in that place, wherever you and I reside. That was the goal. Jesus dwells here. He dwells here by his spirit. He's working, he's building, he's establishing. This is his house. Elam Grace is his house. Your heart, your body is a temple of the living God. He wants to continue to build his house. He wants to continue to move across the face of the earth. There was a moment in one of our once-a-month prayer services, praise and worship, where I was praying, and a woman had a vision. And she said that she saw Jesus. And while I was praying, we were praying as a congregation. We finished that prayer, and then she heard him say, I've been waiting for you to make that prayer. I've been waiting for you to pray that prayer. And then he just looked at us and he said, follow me. Follow me. It's as simple as that. I just want to follow him. I want the church to follow him. I want you to follow Jesus into whatever it is that he has in store for you. He's the one that moves mountains. He's the one that builds the house. He's the one that commands the wind. But he reminds us yet again that it's not by might and it's not by power. But it is and always will be by my spirit. And I have poured out my spirit poured it out. So I invite you to close your eyes. I just want to take a few moments. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place. Again, it's not the word of any man that we've come to listen to, but it's the word of the Lord. And Lord Jesus, if you are speaking to me, if you are speaking to Elam Grace, if you are speaking to us, not by might, not by power, then then Lord, perhaps there's something that you want to get to, that you want to speak to, but most importantly, you want to remind us that it's by your Spirit. And so, Lord Jesus, you have not reserved any portion of your Spirit but you have poured them out from heaven upon your people. And so we receive that. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place with the time that we have left, and we ask you to come. I ask you, Spirit of God, to fill this place. And by this place, I don't mean just this place right now. But I pray for EBI and C that you would fill this place anew. 
Lord, many here have seen things in the past and they have longed for it again. They have heard stories and they have longed for it again. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and that you would revisit them, that you would visit again and that you would pour out afresh your spirit and your power upon these, even these students. Lord Jesus, that you would open up the wells of your spirit, rivers of living water. Lord, that you would strip us of all tendencies to rely upon our own strength and competency, our own power and activity, that in the end it's not in any of those things, as good as they may be, as necessary as they might be, at the end of the day. Lord, it's your spirit that we want. It's your spirit that we need. And so we take a moment, Holy Spirit, to just once more confess that it is by your power. It is in your life. It is in your breath. It is in your blowing that anything that is in the heart of God can be accomplished. And yet, Lord Jesus, you want to accomplish and you will accomplish everything that is in your heart. And you will do so by your Spirit. So would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you come? to you.